Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, I'll explain how I went from viewing an ad on Facebook to having a firearm on my desk. Plus, I'll take you inside Wimbledon 2023. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. I'm not on threads because obviously uh, it's not available here in the EU, which is disappointing, but I do understand it because of the data protection side of things. Now, I think this is all going to move. I'm not going to delve into it too deeply right now. If you are listening outside of Ireland, if you're in the UK or the US and you've tried it, I'd love to know what you think. Uh, as I said there, the email is techtalk at newstalk.com. But we're going to kick off this week's show with something a little bit different. Because around two months ago, an Irish Facebook user took to Twitter to share an ad that appeared on his Facebook wall. The ad was for a foldable, concealable gun. Now, you can click on an icon next to ads on the platform to see why it's appearing in your feed. And this time it said to him that it was because he was in Ireland and he had shown an interest in fishing. Straight away, we here in Newstalk were intrigued by this because the law is very clear in Ireland when it comes to firearms. There's what's called the Firearms and Offensive Weapons Act 1990, which says that you must hold a valid license to hold or possess any firearm and you're only able to do so for certain purposes. In no way can you obtain a firearm in Ireland for personal protection. So I went down a bit of a rabbit hole and I managed to track down this ad and the website that it led me to instantly showed pricing in euro, but there were no age checks, no questions around my holding of a gun license or otherwise. So I went through and added it to my cart and bought it with my PayPal in a matter of minutes. It cost around 50 euro and I received a receipt along with a tracking number. Now it's worth noting at this point that I got onto Meta and flagged this ad with them. They confirmed with me that ads of this nature were not allowed on its platform anywhere in the world as it violated its dangerous ads policy and the initial ads that I saw were removed. I then, because I had my confirmation number from the website after buying the gun, kept an eye on the tracking. But within a matter of days, the website that I bought it from disappeared entirely. I got a 404 error and the email that was on the bottom of my receipt was just giving me bounce backs. So I went into what's called the PayPal Resolution Center and I flagged that the device didn't arrive. And the retailer got back to me to say it would come, so just be patient. I'll be completely honest with you, I kind of forgot about it as the weeks went by until one day I was opening my post and I picked up a white A5 sized envelope, you know, one of those bubble envelopes. Uh, I was sitting at my desk in the middle of the floor here in Newstalk and I saw that the gun was inside, inside a little Ziploc bag. There was no box, there were no instructions, there was nothing. And I'll be completely honest with you, I was quite shocked uh, when the penny dropped and I realised what exactly it was. Because to the untrained eye, it looked to be the gun that was advertised on Facebook. 
It was a foldable firearm that had a trigger when unfolded, but it could be made into the size of a number of credit cards stacked on top of each other. Uh, We called the Gardaí and very quickly they sent a detective to the office to collect it. That detective took it away in an evidence bag and Gardaí are now carrying out tests to see if it is a legitimate firearm or an imitation firearm. Something that I didn't know before all of this, but I know now, is that the legislation I mentioned a second ago, the Firearms and Offensive Weapons Act 1990, was amended in 2009 to include the following line. It will be an offence for any person to import, manufacture, sell, repair, test, expose for sale or possess for sale, repair or test by way of trade, of business, any realistic imitation firearm unless they are registered with the Department of Justice. So the upshot here, excuse the pun, is that regardless of whether this is a viable gun or not, it should not have been for sale nor in the possession of somebody in Ireland without a licence. I spoke to security analyst Declan Power about the distinction between a legitimate and an imitation firearm. But I started by asking him to explain the significance of a 0.22 calibre gun, which this device purported to be. Well, a 0.22 calibre uh, weapon is at the, the lighter end of firearms, but it can kill you uh, in the right hands. And, it, and they don't have to be terribly skilled hands. I suppose the way I would put it, it's as basic as this. If you wanted to do damage to somebody with a 0.22 calibre pistol, you just need to be up reasonably close to them and be able to point the weapon and fire. If you're holding it to uh, the, their head, you can kill a person outright. Um, if you're holding it to uh, a part of their body where there are important organs like the heart or whatever else, you can kill them outright. Now, if there's a bit of distance involved, if it's not a, a straightforward just point and fire situation, it's uh, lethality diminishes somewhat uh, because it's not a very powerful round compared to uh, a higher calibre round such as 9mm which would be standard in police and military uh, pistols uh, sidearms uh, or uh, higher again 5.56 calibre which would be used in military assault rifles but nonetheless uh, as anybody out there who's listening who who has weapons such as shotguns uh, or rifles for uh, you know, managing their, their, their land from uh, keeping it free from vermin. A .22 rifle with a little bit of expertise is, uh, is a lethal weapon and a .22 pistol is a lethal weapon. Do you have any insight into what makes a viable device? And I know that may be a stupid question, but I don't know anything at all about guns. So how or do you have any insight into that, the process of what's a viable firearm versus an imitation firearm? Okay, well, the standard uh, weapon, be it a pistol or a rifle, we'll say, uh, and slightly different uh, from shotgun operations, but essentially all weapons require a a firing pin and they require a working mechanism, sometimes referred to as the action, which are the series of parts that house around the firing pin. So when you see somebody cock a weapon, uh, what they're doing, whether it's pulling back the hammer on a revolver or pulling back the cocking handle on a rifle, what they're doing is partially it pulls the round, the bullet, out of the magazine, brings it into the barrel in a position to be fired, and it also brings the uh, working action, the firing mechanism, which houses the firing pin, back into a position that when the trigger is pulled, it is released with force. The firing pin comes to the fore, it impacts against the base of the cartridge of the bullet, causing an explosion, 
gases are formed that propel that bullet at speed out of the barrel. The longer the barrel, the further the bullet will travel. If they're spiralling on the inside of the barrel, it'll give the bullet more direction. So essentially what makes a, a, a weapon, a pistol or a rifle uh, viable is the addition of the firing pin and the firing mechanism. Is it possible to retrospectively insert a firing pin or the action mechanism into a device? If the device, if they, if it has been designed as a weapon uh, primarily and is just missing those parts, then it is possible to to get either to get the, the parts or to have somebody who is a skilled armor make the parts uh, and put them in. Uh, certainly if it has been designed as a weapon um, it should be made viable by just the addition of those parts if it has been designed purely as an imitation firearm that may not be possible or if it's been designed as a replica firearm it may look like the real thing but it may not have the actual uh, housing and space for those uh, those items that I've just mentioned Okay Why would somebody be the a bad actor or a good actor why would somebody want an imitation device well an imitation device in the world we live in it can be very useful if uh, you uh, you use it appropriately if it looks like a, a a weapon and people are used to seeing weapons on television they're used to seeing firearms uh, conform to certain standards to certain looks and uh, if you've got a uh, an item that looks like that, uh, then you can uh, hold it, handle it, uh, threaten people with it. People aren't going to want to risk the fact that it uh, might be the real thing. And uh, people are used to seeing firearms, as I said, on television. So if it conforms to people's expectations, this is why uh, in a, there was a certain period, particularly in the 1970s, that a lot of robberies were uh, successfully taking place because people were using starter uh, pistols from athletics competitions because they looked very much like uh, a small snub-nosed uh, police revolver as people would have seen in detective shows from uh, American television. Uh, so the it's the same with knives. I mean, if you have a knife that looks like the real thing and it's, it's plastic, you know, you will be able to use it. And not everybody, there's very few people, myself included, who are going to take the risk of um, assuming that that weapon isn't the real thing. And I would be more familiar with weapons than most. Uh, there are a few things that sometimes can give it away. I mean, a repli some replica firearms will be uh, soldered or welded uh, so that the barrel will be blocked up. And you can, if you look at it, you'll probably see that. Uh, there are other other things that can, can give it away some, uh, around the mechanism, around whether there's a, a safety catch. But I can tell you, if you're in a stressful situation, uh, you're a shop assistant, somebody has burst into you and they're waving what looks like a pistol around the place, uh, you will not be thinking about trying to check those details, nor should you. You should operate on the basis that it's a real pistol. And I've, I've been in a few situations abroad, mainly in Africa, where I've seen sometimes uh, people using a, either an inert weapon or a, a fake weapon uh, to good effect. But to be honest, actually, in those parts of the world, there's no shortage of, of the real thing. But uh, I, I suppose I should say in Ireland I've heard of cases too where people have used toy guns because some of them look so realistic mm. uh, and again it's the intent and it's the, the individual using it so if you're dealing with somebody who appears to be competent in the way they're holding the weapon uh, if they're uh, aggressive and threatening 
you know, the, the imitation firearm is the icing on the cake. Mm. And so that, so it is an offense, you know, to have an imitation firearm. But there are some things that aren't actually designed to be imitation firearms. As I said, they could be toys, they could be starting pistols. And it's very hard to keep all those things in check if somebody has nefarious intent. But if you have a weapon that can be rendered active by the addition or uh, the amendment of something, there was a situation where pump-action shotguns being sold in this country. Uh, they were designed to fire, I think it may have been eight cartridges that you could load at a time. And then according to the law here, that, it, it, that was limited to four. So there was a, a type of stopper put in. And most people accepted that. But there were people who were very able to adjust that and to make those weapons fire the eight cartridges illegally. Mm. Um, you will always have people that will, if they can get their hands on weapons that will make them viable, uh, that will know people who will be able to make the necessary adjustments or create the necessary element. So it is something that is to be taken very seriously by law enforcement and by those authorities that uh, monitor what comes in and out of the country. Mm. So would you say that it's concerning that Newstalk were able to find the ad for a firearm on Facebook, order it for 50 euro, have it land into Marconi House and open it on a desk in an open plan office with no red flags cropping up along the way? Absolutely, because... uh it's the simplicity by which you were able to get it and the cheapness by which you were able to get it. So somebody who may be in a, you know, a sensitively a sensitive state, uh, going through a psychiatric episode or who has nefarious intent or a, you know, a grudge against somebody uh, that decides they want to engage lethal force and they find that they can go online and commence a process that has a weapon posted to them without much trouble without much uh, difficulty or obstacle and then I would add to that having seen uh, the the pictures of it a weapon that is parceled up so easily and it would fit in your back pocket like a wallet uh, that it wouldn't draw attention even to the point that if you were being frisked by a policeman you know who mightn't be familiar with uh, those particular firearms could easily miss it uh, so, I mean, it, it renders all kinds of interesting questions. I would be interested to know, do the materials and the structure of it, would they show up in scans? Would it be something that you could take through an airport? Would it be maybe even more disturbing something that you could uh, manage to get into a, a courtroom, mm-hmm. for example, even though I know the courts have really improved their security. But if it's not recognisable, this is the additional element to this, is that it is a lethal firearm when assembled, uh, fr- uh, from what we can see of the uh, of what they're advertising, uh, in, in this your particular case, you'd be interested to know what would it take to be viable. Like, would it be just the addition of a firing pin, or is there some bit of the mechanism missing? But if you uh, if you assume for a minute that you there are ones that you can get that, or uh, when you assemble them, they're viable. The fact that it's not easily recognisable as a weapon in its disassembled state is a an additional factor in making it uh, something that we should take note of and increasing its potential for lethality and danger. Mm. Um, the firearm was handed over to Angarishi O'Connell last Wednesday evening. Uh, obviously, their uh, ballistics department carried out the tests. Even if it's not a viable firearm, could I have done some damage if I had gone out and attempted to fire it on my own, if I'd gotten my hands on ammunition? Is there a danger in having an imitation firearm like this that's deemed not to be a viable gun? 
Not if there wasn't a firing pin or a firing mechanism in it. Uh, You wouldn't have been able to, even if you were able to load ammunition into the magazine, it wouldn't have been operable. But uh, it would have been dangerous from the point of view of what you could have done by pretending it was a firearm, Mm. uh, you know, and and using it as a way to threaten other people. And, uh, you know, curiously enough, when it's assembled, it, you know, it conforms to what people would expect. It's small, but it does look like, you know, a lethal weapon. So... Yeah, without the firing mechanism, it, you, you wouldn't have been able to do any damage to yourself or others other than what you could pretend to do. Mm. But as we know, there's a track record of that. If there was a firing mechanism or if it could take, uh, you know, if there was the housing or the, the space for a firing mechanism or that uh, the mechanism was just missing the firing pin, well, then you're really only one step away from it being turned into a lethal weapon. And depending on how connected you are or how you go about it, or perhaps even just going on the net and going for a, doing a search to see could you buy the relevant firing pin. Mm-hmm. It's so easy now you, for people to look things up on YouTube to find out how to go about getting um, access to things or making things uh, that if a person has enough intent, they could probably find what they need and uh, make the weapon viable, make it operable. That was security analyst Declan Power. Now, there's just another few quick things I want to flag here. So number one, Ads for the exact same device reappeared on Facebook Ireland Ads Library. They were there as recently as 1.30pm on Thursday and they were only removed once I drew Meta's attention to them. The advertiser's advertising ability has now been disabled. While Gardaí are still investigating this case, we do know that the brand of firearm this device purported to be does actually exist we're not mentioning the name of the company just you know to try and be as responsible as possible in our reporting Uh, but from my research I found that the device that I ordered and that I received it could well be an imitation gun because the legitimate company has the following post on its website and this is all in quotes if you have purchased a device name from some website that shipped it to your house for 20 to $50 you've been had. Firearms cannot be shipped right to your door. Yes, these scammers are using our photos. No, we aren't affiliated. Yes, we reported them to Facebook. So it's very clear from the legitimate company's side of things. Uh, there are still obviously a few questions that we have, particularly around the online advertising side of things. The Digital Services Act places more obligations, particularly on what's called very large online platforms to take responsibility for ads on their platform. The bulk of these obligations centre around the safe harbour system of needing to be notified, but they do have the obligation to maintain a transparency register for the history of ads. We are going to continue to stay on this story um, and we will bring you the updates when we have them from the Gardaí, but it's another clear, very stark reminder just to be wary of what you see online. If you're shopping online, verify that websites are legitimate verify that what you're buying is legal in the country where you are buying it uh, before you hit buy and if you see something on any platform that should not be there just hit report we'll be right back tech talk with jess kelly 
Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Before the break, I brought you my report on how we went from seeing an ad on Facebook to having a gun in News Talk. If you missed that report, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud or just search for Tech Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Alternatively, if you're on YouTube, just search for News Talk and you will see myself and Sean Moncrief talking through in a little bit greater detail, um, some of the different aspects of this report, including information on how customs detect and seize firearms that arrive into the country. But now I'm going to bring you something entirely different. On Wednesday of this week, I was given access to Wimbledon. This is something that has been on my bucket list for many, many, many years. Uh, and I was very excited because I got to meet the team from IBM, who are the technology partner of Wimbledon. And... I got a bit of insight into how tech is used on site, but also how new innovations are being implemented every year. Kevin Farrer and Fred Baker of IBM took me downstairs below the court level of Wimbledon and gave me a tour of three separate rooms to meet their teams who are using artificial intelligence to introduce things like AI commentary, deeper analysis, better stats for fans and indeed for the athletes. Welcome. So this is um, one of our rooms. So this is our digital team from IX. So we've got a team that are responsible for Wimbledon.com, the official apps. Yeah, so we have a global portfolio of sports and entertainment partnerships. Uh, so we've got obviously Wimbledon, we've got the US Open Tennis, we've got the Masters Golf. We do some work with um, ESPN Fantasy Football and we also do some work with Grammys as well. So it's, but it's all about data and insights. Um, so some examples, Wimbledon.com, um, that you're going to see. So just, you know, it's a, it's a very rich, beautiful um, user interface, um, very much portraying Wimbledon to fans around the world who can't get here to give that sense of the beauty and the excitement and drama of the championships through the digital platforms. Uh, and we do start with paper and pen. So we, you know, we're sketching out ideas for this. These are the sketches, early sketches for the, the, some of the features that we've implemented this year. So the AI draw analysis, for example, um, and then this gets revised. It's very much a co-creation, collaboration with the with the All England Club. So we work with our teams together, then refining this iterative process, and then that gets rendered to the user interface that you see in the app um, that you will have on your phone, I'm sure, because you would have needed it for your digital ticket. And that, and that, by the way, is really the IBM Garage method and in particular the personas and the, the kind of design-led, human-centered design process is IBM design thinking. So the personas thing that you saw on the screens up there and the process we follow year-round of identifying ideas that will deliver most value to the users, to the Wimbledon fans, understanding those segments of fans, that whole process helps us pick the kind of gems and the millions of things we could do that will deliver most value to the fan and then go through that iterative process and then ultimately be deployed at the championships every year. Because it's really apparent because from the research that I've done, there's so much data that you could present and there's so many different ways I'm sure it could be presented. So how many iterations did it take to get the fine-tuned, very clean display that users can go in to the Wimbledon app and see? And I'm sure they can dig deeper and get the nerdier and nerdier analysis. But if you are just enjoying the tournament and you want to see the top line, 
design stats. How was that presented so and how that, yes, that, that process work? So that was part of the design process as well, was um, presenting information, making it kind of uh, an unroll. Mm -hmm. So you've got that high level kind of, if you want to get the bite size, snack size content, then you can do that. And then you can, you have the ability then if you want to know more to drill down into the into some of the detail. Um, but we work, as I said, we work all year round. We've actually got an innovation work stream that's built into our, our contract with the club. And twice a year we meet members of the club, members of this team. Um, in the spring we have an ideation workshop, so that's looking at what's going on in the world of tech, what's going in on in the world of tech of IBM, what's going on in the world of sport, what innovations are bubbling through. Um, and then we um, pick some of those top ideas, we run proofs of, proof of concepts um, through the summer when we're not running tournaments, um, and then we get together in the autumn and we drill down to, okay, which is the one that we're going to implement for next year's championships, and then the rest kind of are in the hopper for, for consideration for the next two, three years. But, but parallel to all of that, so that's the cycle that we use for innovation to give the new features every year that we that sort of we in the club decide we want to deliver, but in parallel to that there's continuous improvement and innovation going on on existing features. So... Um, this year, for example, the team was saying they've continued to improve the ticketing process, digital ticketing that everyone's been using. They have um, innovated and updated the information architecture. So just the way that fans can access the scores on a match mm -hmm. has been improved and made a bit more easy to access for fans. So those sorts of things are coming from feedback every year that the club gets and fans give that we then implement for the following championships as well. But one of the other key features that we're rolling out for this year is the AI commentary. Mm -hmm. um, so this is providing commentary narration over the top of our highlights reels for this year. So this is built on IBM Watson X. This is our enterprise AI and data platform. Um, so this is using foundation models, large language models, generative AI. Um, here's an example of how this is coming to life. And you can actually go into the official app now and into the website. And as you go into the video highlights section, you'll start to see these match highlights reels with the commentary available on them. It's not automatically switched on. There's little headphones in the bottom right corner. If you click on that, then you get the audio narration. Um, and there's the option for captions as well. So it, it make it, it's just making these highlights reels um, accessible in a new way for fans um, and making them more accessible because you've got both captions and sound. So, so what's next? Yeah, as I say, it's IBM's AI and data platform. So um, there's a number of layers to that. There's a data layer, an AI layer, and a governance layer. So we first of all get the data. You know, it's, it's fed massive amounts of data that it's trained on. Um, curated, it's creating trusted data sources um, and then it's making sure that that is clean, it's filtered for governance, for compliance, for profanity, um, just all of those good things. I mean, you know, we're using trusted data sources for Wimbledon. They've got different use cases, different foundation models for different industries. So there'll be, there'll be one that's trained for financial services, or there'll be one that's trained for retail, we've got one for sport, and this is building on um, some work that was done at the Masters. So we first introduced our commentary at the Masters Golf, um, so every shot, every hole, there is a narration that's available on that. This is now, we had to adapt this and train it again for the, the language of tennis, mm -hmm. the sport of tennis, and the language of Wimbledon as well. You know, this is very specific in terms of gentlemen's and ladies and some of that, and, and, and the, the voiceover is a, very much an English accent, and we've got a man and a lady's voice that's available. So just again, it's making them accessible in a new way. We're into the weeds here of what's an X and how it works, but no, at a high level, it's about you know validating, training, tuning. An example of the tuning is the player names. You know, yeah. Some of the player names are 
pretty tricky. Um, so you know, we ran the models initially um, and then listened to how it was pronouncing the names. And then, because this, this is always about humans and AI working together. So, okay, where it wasn't quite right, go in, refine it, tune it, uh, and to make sure that we were then comfortable with what was going out mm-hmm. on the, the final product. And then that large language model is then deployed, um, so onto the hybrid cloud platform. And then it's using that generative AI to come up with lots of different, um, so this is kind of the metadata, using lots of different variations on um, the actual interpretation of what's going on on the court, because mm-hmm. you can say that in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. And, we'll and this is part of that evolution, that ongoing kind of um, work that Fred was talking about. This isn't, you know, right, we're just going to jump in and once, you know, in, in the autumn in that workshop, right, this is what we're going to build. The, a lot of these features are building on things that have been in development for a number of years. So the AI highlights reels themselves, were rolled out six years ago um, and they are based on things like the noise of the crowd and the player gestures obviously we know the point of the match where we are at and it's using that information to put an excitement rating on each rally and then that they're ranked and then the best clips are then glued together um, into a three to five minute highlight reel that is given to the club content team and they get the final editorial decision on whether it's, you know, if they're happy for it to be published. Again, that work of humans and AI working together. So what this commentary is for this year is an enhancement to those those highlights reels. So it's, again, making them accessible in a new way. And it opens up other possibilities in terms of different languages to help the club, you know, in their, one of their goals of growing their global fan base. So you can see some examples here for a particular you know, section of play. It's come up with lots of different variations and then it picks the best one to actually then use to, to add to the clip. And then, of course, over here, so mm-hmm. this, this is an ongoing um, longer demo of the, the commentary that we're generating for those highlights reels. But we're also doing a behind the scenes proof of concept for this year. So this is weaving computer vision into the mix. So at the moment that commentary is being based on the, the stats. But when you then have computer vision analyzing what's going on on the court, it can spot things that the raw stats don't give you. So um, you can just about make out the different color lines on the player. So there's 17 different limb movements that it's analyzing. But it, you can start to pick up things like when a player plays a shot between their legs. Mm-hmm. You, know, you wouldn't get that from the stats, but the computer vision can pick that up. Um, how many times does a player bounce the ball before they serve? Those little nuances and habits of players that you can get from the computer vision. And this would also enable you to, um, to ultimately create commentary for live matches. Um, now, obviously, you've got your, the commentators we know and love on the, to the, show, the show courts. It's not our intention in any way to replace them. Um, this is about making commentary available where it's not currently present. So for juniors, for seniors, for wheelchairs. Uh, same with the highlights reels. At the moment, it's just ambient court noise. So by adding in that narration, it's just making them more engaging for the fans um, and you know, allowing them to access it in a new way. Can I ask a super question? Does a lot of this analysis just happen on the footage or are there sensors around the court that could provide any form of insight to help develop these models? Yes, there are. I mean, Hawkeye is a prime example. So we take a data feed from Hawkeye, but they are doing all of the analysis of the player movement, the ball movement. So I know people are familiar with Hawkeye because of the challenge system, but it's actually all of the player tracking as well as going on from Hawkeye. And that's a data feed that we take, and that feeds in as well to the insights that we're producing because you can know how far a player stretched for a ball, etc. So there's some of that you can get just from the stats Mm -hmm. and from the tracking. 
But then if you put the vision piece in, that's when you can start getting other interesting snippets that can help enrich that commentary that's being generated. So, you know, the, the, your, your commentators, they, they like to fill in with real, you know, interesting little nuggets Colour, of information yeah. and colour and texture. Yeah. So with the computer vision piece being added into Mix, then you can add in some of that colour and texture, which yeah. is... Yeah. So lots of possibilities in the future around this. I'd say this also, what we've just talked through, is a really awesome example of the whole kind of design thinking and IX process where it may start literally with simple ask of let's make Wimbledon more accessible or let's reach more fans, something very simple that's a business mm. sort of value statement or opportunity. We will, behind the scenes, be doing a ton of the kind of diverge process, find opportunities to do that, generate more data, more insight, and then have all this rich stuff to work with mm. to then really elegantly again solve the problem. So. All the fan sees after all of this is some great highlight clips at the end of a match that can have some narration, yeah. but it's been this whole sort of loop that we've gone through to be able to produce still that solution that not only um, kind of crystallises the insight into something that's engaging, but also fits with the whole kind of design style and experience that we want fans to have. So with Wimbledon it's very much about getting the balance right each year between the tradition and heritage of Wimbledon as a brand um, and the tech and the innovation. So we still, at the end of the day, we want it to be tennis in an English garden. That's a phrase that's used, um, and it's very true. But um, but there's a lot going on under the covers, which we're we're taking a peek at at the moment. You think about you think about something like ESPN Fantasy Football, mm. which we equally have a ton of data to work with, but it's a very different experience that the fans there want. So the experience when you come into the app with Wimbledon is still very elegant. Yeah, yet very we're well still done. surfacing all this amazing yeah. insight. How do the players feel about this, like the, the level of data that can be garnered? Because you know, it, it may have been like a long kept secret that someone will bounce the ball four times when they're in bad form and twice if they're in good form or something like that. <laughs> and if you guys are using this amazing technology to put that on my smartphone, I'm sure their opposition then would, might be taking a bit of an, an interest in that as well. I guess it's a fine balancing act. We so we do provide a service to the players. So Wimbledon.com, you can sign in with you would have signed in and um, and as a as a fan, you can sign in as a player, you can sign in as a coach, and then you get different information. So one of the services we've provided to the club and have done for a number of years is we tie up the stats that I've spoken about that we're collecting with the video, so that it makes it searchable. So they can go in and pull up their match and they can say, right, show me all the aces, and they can click on one of them. It will take you to that point in the match. So that and yeah, there's lots. Of possibilities in the future around the, the analysis and the data we're collecting to, to, to be used for coaches, players, fans um, and it's, it's the process we would go through is to see you know, and we would of course get feedback and work with them, um, yeah. user testing etc to see um, what would work and what wouldn't work. Yeah. We've, we've had some um, wonderful feedback from some of the players around the world like, and especially in the Masters where they effectively can use um, the app we've produced to scout themselves and find out what they did well and improve their game for the next round. So, um, yeah, it's not just fans that are benefiting from it. That was Kevin Fryer and Fred Baker of IBM taking me on a tour of Wimbledon. I have to say I loved every single second of it. Uh, what do you make of tech like this being introduced into sport? Are you a fan or what do you make of it? Email me techtalk at newstalk.com. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, Kira O'Brien is going to join me to talk about the new Twitter rival from Meta that's called Threads. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, at the top of the show, I mentioned that I'm not on 
uh, Meta's threads app yet. It's not available here in the EU. But Kira O'Brien of the Irish Times has been on it. Uh, Kira, tell me a little bit about your experience and what you make of it. So first of all, this is an Instagram linked app. So it's basically Instagram's conversation app. The best thing about this is when you log into it, first of all, you can follow all the same accounts that you follow on Instagram. So you have a ready-made community. And I don't know about you, but I found this is the issue with you know the rivals to Twitter, all the, the stuff that we've been told, you know, this this is going to be the Twitter killer, this is going to be that this other one is going to be the Twitter killer. It's building that community from scratch. And I think that's what's kept people hanging around Twitter for so long, even though at this point, for most people, um, they would say, you know, it's not really much use anymore. It's full of, you know, all the, the, the blue tick madness has basically ruined the whole experience for people. Um, and it's certainly why I would hang around Twitter a bit more. But I found now the last couple of days since I started a Threads account, I have been using uh, it, Twitter less and less because there's so much noise on there now um, and there's so much kind of irrelevant noise you know whereas before I would follow the the accounts that I wanted to follow and you'd see kind of you know replies from people that might provoke a bit of thought now it's you know it's full of spam it's full of uh, you know kind of the blue tick replies obviously get pushed to the top um, and the amount of people who are paying for Twitter blue versus the amount of people I follow who are playing for Twitter blue you know, that, that's a, that ratio is, is off for me. So, you know, going into threads, it's something brand new. And obviously people have a bit of FOMO as well, because officially we can't get this in the EU. I got around this because I have a US App Store account, um, which means, you know, obviously I can get access to this, but technically speaking, I'm not supposed to be in there. And there's quite a few Irish people in there in the same boat. You know, they might have a UK account uh, or they might have just downloaded the uh, the Android package installed it on their phone outside of the play store uh, and you know that there are there are definitely irish people on there but <laughs> what i found is it's it's very it's kind of like a cross between instagram and twitter so you have all the people that you want to follow on instagram and they're now in your 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 threads feed uh, along with all of these other suggested accounts so it's kind of like you know the the for you section on twitter except without a lot of the currently without a lot of the objectionable stuff that, you know, to be honest, has never made me feel like the for you section on Twitter is actually for me. Mm. So it's cleaner. It's easier to, to, to get around. And look, it is rough. It is early days. There are things that are missing that if you're used to Twitter, you will actually miss stuff like, you know, direct messages um, the ability to easily filter uh, your feed so it's only people that you follow uh, the ability to add a photograph uh, or to, to not to add a photograph, to take a photograph, edit it, or to take video inside the app. You know, you have to have it already created, and then you can just attach it to your your Threads update. Um, a few people have also commented that the uh, the the actual logo for Threads reminds them of of worms, but you know, I didn't see it until somebody sp- said it, and now that's all mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Uh, so you've explained there how you have access to it and how other people have access to it. Just explain why the rest of us here in Ireland and the EU can't have access to it? Well, there is some issue over data sharing. Meta has been slapped a number of times um, by the DPC over how it deals with people's personal data. Uh, I'd imagine that at this point, what they're trying to do is get their ducks in a row to see if, first of all, this is an acceptable use of their data. Um, if they're allowed to 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 
share all this because what you are doing is with threads, it is an offshoot of Instagram. So you are taking all your Instagram data and sharing it into this new app. Now, you know, obviously people have to tread carefully um, when it comes to stuff like this. You'd have to make sure that they're not going to get, you know, brought up uh, to the, the in front of the DPC again over the sharing of data between apps. So at the moment, until all these finer details are ironed out, and I suppose everybody is satisfied that all of this is is within our data protection guidelines and rules, you know, we won't see threads here officially. Uh, but mm-hmm. as I said, there's plenty of ways to get it, you know, kind of to, to, to go around things to get it. There are risks with that. Obviously, if you download something from outside the Play Store, you know, you open up your, your system, to your, your phone to potential malware because that can happen. It depends on where you get that software package from. It can sometimes come with some nasty, unwanted stuff. If you decide to set up a whole new account, you'll have to have a VPN on the Play Store to actually access the, uh, they say the UK or the US or anywhere else, you know, you'd have to have that, you have to have a payment card and you'd have to have a VPN for that region. Uh, and then it's a bit awkward because you have to keep kind of logging in and out of different accounts. I mean, as it is at the moment, I don't have access to some of my Apple stuff because of my Apple subscriptions because I've signed in with a different app store. So now I have to go back and sign out. It's 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 a bit of a faff thing because anytime there's an update, I have to sign out of the app store, sign back into the US account, get the update, come back, do it all over again. It is a bit of a pain. Um, mm-hmm. If you're really dying to get your hands on threads, though, obviously, this is I suppose that the, the easiest way to do it. Yeah, as I said, I haven't done it yet um, and I don't know that I'm dying to do it just because I suppose a lot of my audience are in Ireland and I would say not necessarily, and I say my audience, but like the people that I'd interact with and follow and the people who would follow me on Instagram may not have it yet. So I don't really feel the the need or the urge to do one of those workarounds. But I think you're just doing it more from a journalistic point of view to try and get your paws on it, right? Yes, exactly. And also, tiny bit of FOMO. I wanted to see what was going on, you know, and it's kind of nice to be onto things early so you can see how it develops. You know, we've already seen there were people complaining at the start that you couldn't deactivate your Threads account without deactivating Instagram. Now, that seems to have rapidly changed because now you can actually deactivate your Threads account without affecting Instagram. The one thing you can't do is delete your Threads account because it's linked to your Instagram account. But if you deactivate it, it essentially disappears. So, you know, you're not using it. You're not giving them any more data on Threads. So I think it it kind of, I suppose, in, in some way, it amounts to the same thing. But, you know, when all these accounts are linked, this is where these issues come up. You know, if you want to delete one service completely, what happens to the rest of them that are linked? And we found this before, you know, and if you use your Facebook account to log into different services as a, a way of authorizing things without having to have a million different passwords for different services, you could use your Facebook account. But then, you know, if you decide you want to deactivate your Facebook account and delete your Facebook account, then you have to go back and kind of you know, uh, work with all these services to reset passwords and, and find new ways of logging in. So it works the same way. Obviously, there's a bit more of a tighter integration here because it is an Instagram uh, an Instagram app. So if you try to delete threads, your Instagram will go too, but you can deactivate it safely without affecting Instagram now. Yeah, and look, as you said, that, that there's going to be tweaks and all the rest as it goes along. But the timing couldn't have been better because it went live on Thursday of this week, just a few days after Musk had done that tweet limit exceeded thing on Twitter. So a lot of people were up in arms and were confused as to what was going on on the Twitter platform, even more so than they had been up to this point. 
so from Meta's point of view, the, the execution was pretty well timed. It was. And look, this thing has been been flagged for a good while now that they were working on this. They've been working on it for several months. Um, but I do think, yes, uh, brilliant timing on their part to launch it. It created a bit of hype. And then obviously people were annoyed with Twitter. And this is an ongoing thing. Look, there are people out there who love Twitter as it is now, who think that the, what Elon Musk has done to it is uh, the best thing they've ever done. I personally don't agree because I find this thing of paying for uh, paying for, for vis- visibility, you know, quite annoying. Um, it's not the, the Twitter blue stuff. It's not a verification. It's just a verification that you have access to a payment card. I don't know who I'm interacting with is who they say they are, because, you know, all it means is that they can they can they can they can pay eight dollars or 11 euro or whatever it is now for this blue check. So I think, yes, a lot of people are happy with, you know, how Twitter is going. They are perfectly welcome to stay there and, you know, give Elon Musk their money every month. For everybody else who has found the changes to Twitter both annoying and off-putting because, you know, there, there have been issues, you know, like the, the, the moderation teams have been gutted. There's more and more glitches. And I mean, when I started to get that rate limit exceeded the other day, I thought, oh, here we go again. You know, here's another consequence. And, you know, like there are there have been kind of speculation about, you know, what actually sparked that rate limit um, and, mm. and, you know, whether or not it was anything to do with AI scraping, AI companies scraping data from Twitter. But like, at the end of the day, look, if you want people to stay on your platform, don't annoy them would be the, the 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 best bit of business advice. And I am not a business person, but it would just seem to me to be absolutely, you know, elementary. Don't annoy your customers. Um, I mean, if you're limiting even the paying customers to a certain amount of, of tweet views, that just doesn't really make sense, particularly when you are dependent still on advertising. And by the way, increasingly crappy advertising, because I haven't seen, first of all, I haven't seen as many uh, spam DMs as I have since, since October last year. I have never seen as poor quality ads flogging absolute rubbish in my Twitter feed as I have in the last couple of months. You know, this the changes to me are not great changes. I'm not the only one who feels like that. So the time is ripe for a new platform to come in and as i said you know there have been challengers you know people move to mastodon there's post there's blue sky there's you know there's spoutable there's there's loads of platforms out there but the power of this particular one is that it has a ready-made community now on the flip side of that obviously look facebook and meta have had their issues um and i i actually don't know how this has happened that you know that 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 something created by meta which was you know, kind of like the 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 bad. I suppose people were looking at this as you know, in terms of of privacy and what Facebook was doing in particular. You know, a year or two ago, you know that that people had a di- very different opinion of Meta uh, a year ago, and he has managed to make Meta seem like the good guy in the whole social media thing, which is an achievement in itself. You know, by Elon Musk, but I'm not sure that was the one that he wanted. Mm. Uh, talking of Elon Musk. In the last wee while, there has been a development um, and a legal letter issued. Explain what's going on in the non-cage fight MMA or whatever it is battle between Musk and uh, Zuckerberg. Oh, this is the latest thing now. Yeah, they've threatened to sue Meta. Twitter's threatening to sue Meta, saying that it's it stole company trade secrets in, in creating uh, threads and. 
basically the reason for this is because apparently he says that, you know, ex-Twitter people are now working at Threads. But these would possibly be the Twitter people that he fired, uh, that he let go in the US, that people, you know, people have to work. So, you know, if they want to go and work at Meta, I can't really see this going very far. I will caveat that by saying I am not a legal expert but there has been people from Meta have come out and said there are no Twitter engineers working on engineering in threads. So whether or not this is going to go any further than a legal letter and, you know, some uh, you have to stop this because it's threatening us. I mean, to me, all that says the fact that the, that Twitter has sent a legal letter to Meta over threads means that they're actually worried about this. Mm hmm. So what they've actually, I think that the letters basically accuse them of engaging in a misappropriation of Twitter's trade secrets and intellectual property. Um, claim that they'd hired dozens of former Twitter employees that had access to confidential information about Twitter. And some of them, and it also claimed that some of them had improperly retained Twitter documents and electronic devices. Now, if you remember when, when Elon Musk came in and instantly axed half the staff, and then, you know, I think they're down to, like, they're down to a fraction of what they used to have. I mean, inevitably, some of these people are going to go work in another social media company. And I'm not entirely sure that given the chaos that he brought to the company when he decided that he was just going to randomly cut. I mean, people were, were at mid-meeting finding that they were losing access to company systems. Um, I don't think you really have a right to start talking about, you know, you know, holding on to uh, Twitter documents and electronic devices if people like literally couldn't give them back because they didn't have access to anything that, you know, they could kind of say, well, look, I still have this. Mm. Um I just I, I'm not sure this is going to go anywhere. I mean, this like neither of them have commented on it. It is just a legal letter at this point. If they actually file a case, it could be very interesting. I would be getting out the popcorn for that one because I'm not sure that would be a, a, a path that Twitter would be willing to go down because obviously a legal case brings scrutiny. And do you really want all of that out in the open in a court? I, I, I'm not sure that's that's something I would I would be very uh, keen on going down if I was in Twitter at the moment. No. Anyway, look, it's going to continue. There's going to be back and forth. Hopefully, uh, threads will come to Ireland. We can all see if the fuss is about and if we really need another social media platform. Uh, I guess time will tell. Uh, Kira O'Brien of the Irish Times, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thanks.